Hi, this is Pastor Beth from Gate City Vineyard Church in Greensboro, North Carolina, and you are listening to this week's sermon. I hope you enjoy it and that it helps you to know Jesus just a little better. Y'all believe that God is one, but he is in three persons, the Trinity. That's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I like to sometimes think about what it must be like in the Godhead, in the Trinity, when they're talking to each other. What do they say? What do they do? And so um, I have this imagination of this conversation that took place when, right before we were about to be created. Now, this is not scripture. This is just fiction. This, is, this conversation uh, did not take place in this way. But this is something that I like to imagine took place when they were thinking about creating us. Jesus says to the Father, so, is it time to make these humans we've been talking about? Yes, said the Father. We're going to make them in our image. They will be beautiful. The Holy Spirit jumped in with a question. How can these weak, small creatures we're creating possibly reflect our image? I mean, they have such little arms and legs and very small brains. We, on the other hand, are infinite and so varied and complex. How in the world can they reflect all of that? And the father replied, of course, no one human is going to reflect all of us. But we're going to put ourselves in each one in a different way. We're going to make them to look different and act different. There'll be different colors and shapes and sizes with different abilities and gifts. They'll live in different places, which will give them different experiences and habits and preferences. And eventually, they'll speak different languages, although they'll bring that confusion on themselves. And so different cultures and ways of being and eating and thinking and celebrating will develop, and it will all reflect the multifaceted, diverse beauty that's in the three of us. Jesus, seeing the implications of this, got excited. So that means they'll really only reflect us fully when they're all together, all like individual parts of a single whole. They'll only really reflect us as they share their differences with each other and love each other through the varied experiences and preferences they have. And maybe, Jesus said, it will even be exciting for them to see how they differ from one another because they're going to learn more about us from each other. Yes, the father said. You see, that's what the church will be for. See, it won't work if they stay all by themselves, alone, or even just within their own tribe with people just like them. No, our full glory will not be seen until they are all diverse as they are, working together, knowing one another, understanding each other, loving each other, serving each other, worshiping us together as one, as we are one. Now, the Holy Spirit had been very quiet and suddenly looked somewhat alarmed. You do know what these humans will be like, right? I mean, they will barely be able to get along with people that are just like them. How will they possibly love each other through language barriers and cultural differences with different skin colors and opinions and preferences? I'm afraid our image is going to end up splintered across the world, segregated and shattered into different pieces if we're not careful. And the Father looked with love on the Holy Spirit. And he quietly said, you're right. That's where you come in. They're going to need you, Holy Spirit, to be so powerfully working among them, so present, 
so real that they can see what they were meant to become. They must listen to you, to your quiet tugging at their hearts, the humbling of your presence to see how much they need each other to reflect us and truly know us. They're going to need you to soften and even change their hearts and minds. They're going to need you, Holy Spirit, in order to learn to listen and learn new things from each other. They're going to need you to learn how to love people who are very different from themselves. I'm sorry, but you are going to have your work cut out for you. And Jesus, ever the optimist, beamed at them all. Yes, it's going to be a challenge for sure, but when they truly learn to love each other like we love each other here, isn't it going to be beautiful? When they have friendships across cultures, when they give to one another freely, when they feel what the person besides them feels and long for the goodness of all, isn't that going to be incredible? I can't wait to see that happen. And they all smiled, and there was a moment of silence, and all the members of the Trinity said, Amen. Amen. Amen to that. That story moves me. I know it didn't necessarily happen that way. That was not their words. Um, Those are not direct quotes from God, but I do think it reflects the heart of God who we see in Scripture. That the diversity and the variety of God's people is something that brings pleasure to God. And all together, it reflects his glory. It reflects his glory. So it's a value and a goal here for Gate City Vineyard, something that's deeply on the heart of our leadership team, that we would here grow in diversity, better reflecting the community around us and better reflecting God's heart for us in his creation. We would more reflect him as we celebrate and embrace different cultures, different people, um, different ethnicities and races within our body. It needs to be just who we are. It has to be our DNA, not something we force or contrive, but something that we just continually set the table for here. We continually make room for. We continually welcome. We, We make way for newness. We welcome differences and open the door to all. And so I'm going to be doing a two-week series, um, which I'm calling Every Nation, Tribe, People, and Tongue, Why Diversity Matters to God. And I really believe that this is the biblical, the biblical story. I'm going to start this week with a lot, of, a lot of the biblical case for why God desires our churches to be multicultural and multi-ethnic. But I'm going to then next week talk a little bit more about some of the practical aspects of that. So this week, we're going to jump into the word. And I'm going to be using some words like diversity and multicultural and multi-ethnicity. And I want you to know that these are not just buzzwords. We're not just jumping on some bandwagon. This is biblical. This is deeply grounded in who God is how he created us, why he created us, and how we're meant to thrive. And so um, as I was listening to a podcast by Derwin Gray, who wrote the book Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, he made this provocative comment. He says, the gospel demands multi-ethnic churches. The gospel demands multi-ethnic churches. And he quotes from Romans where he says, uh, Paul says, I'm obligated, I'm obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish, That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are there in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The gospel is for everyone, and we're obligated, along with Paul, to intentionally bring that gospel to all people. And I hope that um, we will see that today as we look at how God had intentionally planned for multi-ethnicity from the beginning of time all the way to the very end of time. And so we're going to start at the end. 
We're going to go, go to the end of the story, go to Revelations, um, and how the church at the end of the time will be multi-ethnic. There's a verse I want you all to know, Revelation 7-9. Say Revelation 7-9. I want you to know this verse. This is an important verse for us to know. It um, shows what the church will be like at the end of time. It's an image of heaven. And there's a throne with the lamb on it, Jesus, and there are angels, thousands upon them, circling the throne with elders and creatures, and they're praising the Lord. And then some stuff happens, Jesus opens some seals, some people were counted, and then we get to this scene in Revelations 7, 9. And it says this, after I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And it's very interesting to me that in this moment, this group of people, this group of worshipers gathered around the throne are decidedly multi-ethnic. John, who wrote Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made a point of pointing out who these people were and where they were from. He could have just said there was a multitude before the throne praising God. But he didn't. He said every tribe, nation, people, and language. He wanted us to know. No one was left out. No one was sitting in the front row and no one was sitting in the back row. No one had more power and more presence and more in with God than anybody else. They weren't segregated into different countries or races or cultures. All together, all united around the throne of God, worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the vision that God wants us to have. That's, the, that's where we're going to be someday. We're going to be in that great crowd of witnesses. Hallelujah. It's, he likes that kind of worship. It's a beautiful scene. And now I ask you, what are they singing when they're worshiping him up there? Are they singing gospel? I hope so. <laughs> I hope there's some gospel in heaven. There better be. Are they singing jazz? Are they singing rap? They sing in white contemporary praise music. Uh, they sing in 19th century hymns, a little How Great Thou Art. Are they singing Middle Eastern chant? Are they chanting like monks up there? Are they singing in Spanish or Korean or Russian? Hallelujah, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> I don't know how that's all going to sound, y'all, but it's going to be beautiful. Somehow God is going to bring it together, all of us, and all the uniqueness of every one of our cultures and languages, and he's going to bring it together before his throne, and that's how we're going to worship. Hallelujah. I can't wait to be there. I can't wait to be there. So the church at the end of the time will be multi-ethnic. Let's just keep that in our minds. Let's never forget that, that that's where we're headed. Okay? Now, the second thing I want to do is go back now to the beginning, the launching of the church after Jesus' death. The launching of the church was also multi-ethnic. There was a huge ethnic divide in those days, and it was between Jews and Gentiles. There was a huge amount of prejudice between them against one another. Jews could not even enter a Gentile house. They couldn't eat the food that they ate. They touched it. it was, they would not even think of intermarrying. It was, uh, the relationship was so antagonistic, probably even more so than it is between different races and ethnicities today. It was extremely antagonistic. And it was, as it always is, about power. Okay, there was a whole power struggle going on at this time. The Roman Gentiles were the main dominant power. They had taken over the whole region in the time of Jesus. And the Jews were the underdogs. They were the diaspora, um, had been in exile, kind of scattered throughout the whole in the cities and the rural areas. And their deepest hope was that the Messiah would come. But what did they want the Messiah to do? They wanted the Messiah to overthrow the Romans, 
right? I mean, they weren't interested in let's coexist and have this fun time all together. They wanted them out. They wanted the power. They were not in power, and they wanted to be in power. And so that was their goal. And so when Jesus came and showed himself to be the Messiah, even the disciples were kind of hopeful, this is it, now the power is coming. And we see this in little indications that after um, he rose from the dead, so here the Romans, the Gentiles had crucified him, but then he rose from the dead. So okay, he's got power over these Romans. Probably hoping, is this now it? And that, in fact, that's exactly what they asked him, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, as they're talking to him at the beginning of Acts. They say to him, Lord, are you at this time going to return or restore the kingdom to Israel? So they thought, we're getting the power. He's got the power. We're with him. And then he says to them, you're going to receive power when you, when you go into Jerusalem. Wait for it. And so they're kind of like, cool, now we're going to get power too. But it wasn't power that they thought they were going to get. Watch what happens at Pentecost. This moment that they receive, Pentecost, receive power from God. Does it put them into power? Or does it show God's multicultural heart, multi-ethnic heart? There was a sound like the blowing of a violent wind and tongues of fire came down to rest on them. They spoke in other tongues as the Spirit enabled him. This was the moment of Pentecost. They were filled with the Spirit of God and the tongues they were speaking were not a prayer language or just a bunch of syllables that nobody could understand. They weren't even a tongue proclamation that someone needs to interpret. No, they were actual languages that they were speaking, real languages that people spoke. Let's read from Acts 2. It says, Now they were staying in Jerusalem. There were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. What a strange thing for the Spirit to do when he came. I mean, there's lots of things the Spirit could have done when he came. But what he did was give them all language to one another, for one another. Do we hear an echo from Revelation 7-9? Say Revelation 7-9. Every people... Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. He's recreating that moment that's going to be at the end of time right here as the church is launched. This is the moment when the church began. The big C church was started. And right from the get-go, God is saying, my church is going to be multi-ethnic, multilingual, multicultural. Where the spirit is moving, he's going to move among all and with all. Wow, that's the start, just the start. Now, the formation of the church, as it started to grow, was also multi-ethnic. Now, unfortunately, this incredible experience at Pentecost did not stop the Jews and Gentiles from having a real problem with each other. So this was a problem all through Acts. You can read it. Um, it's a problem that comes up in a lot of the letters that Paul was writing to the churches during that time in Acts. Um, the Jewish believers still thought initially that the message of Pentecost was for them, not for those Gentiles, right? Uh, it never occurred to them that it would be for the Gentiles. And so there's this whole series of events and acts as the church is being formed, and they're slowly coming to realize, right? So um, first you have Peter and the Gentiles. He has this moment in Acts 10. We read the story of a Gentile man named Cornelius has a vision that he's supposed to go find this Jewish man, Peter, and ask him to come speak to him. Now, this is all very, very strange, very unusual 
This would not happen, but he tells them to come. And when Peter finally comes, the first thing Peter says to all the Gentiles that are there in this house as he's in there, he says, you are well aware it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me, he had a vision as well, that I should not call anything or anyone impure or unclean. And so he begins to preach the gospel to this room full of Gentiles. And what happens? They all believe. And worse yet, they get filled with the Spirit. <laughs> and they're speaking in tongues. And he's like, what? And so what's he going to do? He baptizes them in the name of Jesus Christ. Right? They, are, they become part of the family. And when he goes back to Jerusalem to the Jewish church, they're like, what are you doing? baptizing Gentiles, and he says, listen to this, and this is what he says, God, if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections, and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Did you catch the phrase, even to Gentiles? Like, they're the worst. They're the worst, but even Gentiles, they, they're getting this life. It was, this was I don't think we have an appreciation, because we're not in that time period, for how groundbreaking this was, how completely, uh, how this rebelled against the whole social order of the day. It was just completely turning everything upside down. It'd be like, it'd be like us like, gathering up all the homeless people and saying, you're now in charge of the government, <laughs> which might actually be an improvement, I don't know. But, uh, you know. <laughs> But, you know, it's like it was so upside down. It's like, wait, I don't understand. You know, like what is happening here? The Gentiles having this along with the Jews. We're meant to worship together. It was just astounding to them. And they had to come together under Jesus. That was the only way they could do it. They were so different, had so many um, different approaches to life, different values, different ways of living, different ways of eating. They came under Jesus. And so it would continue to be very hard in the first century church this first century form of racism would continue, and it was racism between the two. They just um, could not stand to be together, and yet God was bringing them together. And so the Apostle Paul had to step in in various places um, to remind each of them. He had to remind the Gentiles, who were not liking being with the Jews, he had to remind them um, that the, the Jews are your brothers and sisters. In Ephesians 2, he says this, Remember, he's talking to Gentiles. Remember, formerly you were who are Gentiles by birth. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he's reminding them, you're, you're now part of this, 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 this whole um, vine of Israel. Now you get grafted into that vine. He also had to remind the Jews who kept slipping back into that um, racism against the Gentiles. Peter even, the one who had the revelation, he messes up. And Peter had to be called out by Paul about this in Galatians 2. He says this, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul speaking. Because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So this was hard work. We must not think this was easy for them. It went against everything that they understood. It was a radical change. Um, and it's still hard for us today. We're still often very segregated in our churches. Um, we tend to go with like people that worship and think the way we do. That tends to be the way human beings go. And this is what um, Paul reminds them. This, is, this was God's plan for his church. 
It's his plan for his church as it was formed, and it's his plan for his church still here in 2024. He says this in Galatians 3, 26 to 29, another verse we should all know. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there any male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In one verse, he knocks the power out of racism and prejudice and ethnic preference, neither Jew nor Gentile. Full stop. Full stop. He knocks the power out of classism and oppression of any one race or person over another, neither slave nor free. Full stop. He knocks the power out of misogyny and the oppression of women and patriarchy, knocks it out, neither male nor female. Full stop. Instead of power and segregation, there's love and inclusion. Glorious, multi-ethnic, multicultural, equal gender body of Christ. It's a beautiful vision that he has for us, and it was as radical then as it still is today. It's radical for us today. This is what God's church is meant to be. This is how we're meant to be. Every one of us so interesting and unique reflect the image of God, and so together we come together, and we see that when it worked in the early church in Ephesus and Galatia and, and, and Corinth, we see them coming together. We see them worshiping God together, and, it, and sometimes it worked. There's an interesting uh, reverse power situation that happened when um, the Macedonian churches, now the Macedonian churches were out west. They were um, Gentile. They were mostly very poor but they, in their poverty, made a collection for the wealthier Jewish people in Jerusalem because they were going through a famine, a very devastating famine that lasted for many, many years. And so they brought this, 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 this gift, this gift, this offering to the to Jews in Jerusalem, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Because the Jews in Jerusalem thought they were going to be the ones in power and they were going to be the ones doing the thing, and yet the people, the very people that they initially thought they were going to oppress are actually now serving them. See, this is the upside-down kingdom that we're a part of. This is kingdom stuff, that the, that the lesser serves the greater, the greater serves the lesser, that there's no power differential. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We're all together and level at the cross together. And so this is the kingdom. Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, for he himself is our peace, who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. No barrier. Can you say no barrier? no barrier? No barrier. There's no barrier between us and each other. There's no barrier between us and another church down the street, a, an all-white church, an all-black church, a Hispanic church. There's no barrier. We're all under Jesus. No barrier between us. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace and one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom we get to be part of. This is the holy calling we have. You and 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 me all built together into one beautiful dwelling where God will, will live. That's what he desires for us. So did they get it? Did they finally start to get it, this early church? Well, we start to see now that the leadership of the church started to get it. And it was also uh, multi-ethnic. I want to read a little bit. This often, this small, skipped-over verse in Acts 13 says this. Acts 13, 1 to 3. It says, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mandan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And that was the start of Paul's first missionary journey, where he went out and and planted a bunch of churches. Antioch was a very important city in that day. Um, It was considered the most important Roman colony in Asia Minor. It was large, very multi-ethnic, large number of indigenous people who came from that area but also Roman citizens, transplants, travelers from other parts of the world, wealthy senators and equestrians, a large Jewish presence. It was an extremely diverse kind of city. And so Antioch became this church in this diverse city um, that became a, a real hub of the Christian world. There was Jerusalem, which was kind of the mothership, but then Antioch became kind of that second hub, place where the missionaries were sent out from. Um, it was the, actually the place, the scripture says, the first place that the Jesus followers were called Christians, they were, which means little Christ. They acted like Christ, and so they were called Christians, which is kind of cool. Um, this was a multi-ethnic city, not unlike Greensboro. Rich and poor, Jews, Gentiles, natives and Romans, and this church. And so it's striking that in this church, we have this list of leaders who prayed over and sent out Barnabas and Paul. And it's a very diverse leader group of leaders. Again, this is, you know, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, The writer of Acts wanted us to know where all these people were from. He didn't have to put all the names in there and the places, but he did. He wants us to know how diverse this group was. And so I'm just going to go through them real quick. Barnabas. Okay, we already know Barnabas. He was a Jew from the island of Cyprus. We all know that he, we know from other places that he was from the tribe of Levi. So he was a priestly, a priestly Jew. Then we have Simeon called Niger. Niger is the Latin term for black or dark, which implies that Simeon's complexion was very dark. And so most likely he was from northern Africa, and he was probably a Gentile from where he was from. Then we have Lucius of Cyrene. Now, Cyrene was also a big city in North Africa, North Africa, but it was actually a more prosperous city, had a very large Jewish population. So the likelihood is that he was probably a Jewish believer from Africa. Then we have Menian, who it says was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, which is kind of interesting. Um, This phrase means that he was brought up with him, means one of two things. Either he could have been um, kind of a slave playmate for King Herod, which they did in those days. They'd have a child brought in to play with him, but he would have been educated along with Herod then and gone through all of that. And at the end of when Herod would grow up, he would actually probably been set free and given position of authority. So um, he could have been that, or he could have just been another upper-class kid who ended up playing with King Herod. They grew up together, had the same teachers, and so on. But in either case, this was a Gentile who was in a position of authority, had had education, had had privilege, grown up right next to the king. And then, of course, we know Saul, right, who is Paul, and he was a Pharisee, a Jew among Jews, uh, well-trained, highly educated, and respected. Fascinating, right? We have here a Levitical Jew, an African Gentile, an African Jew, a royally connected and privileged Gentile, and a Jewish Pharisee. All leading and teaching the church together in Antioch. I wish I could sit on one of their elder meetings. <laughs> I want to see what that was like. All their different perspectives, all their different views. All their different opinions, all their different prejudices, which they all had some prejudices, we all do, they would have had to humble themselves to work together, to lay down their need to always be right or have their way be the way that's the only right way. 
they would have had to submit themselves to one another and, and, and purposed to listen really hard to the other people, to find out where they're coming from and why they think what they think. And yet at the same time, they would have also had to have been bold enough to speak what they knew and their experience and their truth because the rest of them all needed their point of view as well. Do you see how incredible that was? How beautiful. This is an image for us in the church. It's an image for us on an elder board. It's an image for us in any committee that we have here that we learn to listen and give and hear and also speak what we know and what we have been given. The Zondervan Illustrated Bible Commentary says this about the church in Antioch. It says, in many ways, the church of Antioch is a model church, the kind of example our churches should strive to emulate. It's a church with a plurality of gifted leaders who zealously and selflessly serve the Lord. It's a multi-ethnic church which reflected the fact that the gospel is not just for one particular group. And it's a church of people who worship the Lord with sincere hearts, sensitive to the leading of the Spirit, and obedient to the Lord's direction. So I started this morning telling you the statement from Derwin Gray, which said the gospel demands multi-ethnicity. Do you start to see why maybe that's true? If the church was, was launched multi-ethnic, if it was formed multi-ethnic, if the leadership of the early church was multi-ethnic, and if at the end of time it's going to be multi-ethnic, hmm, I see a pattern here. Do you think this might reflect God's heart? And why would this not be the cry of our hearts as well? Why would this not be our desire, our deep desire for Gate City Vineyard that we would reflect that here? Amen? Amen. And so here we are in one of the most diverse cities uh, in North Carolina. So much diversity in this city. Um, yet there's still a lot, of, a lot of segregation, especially on Sunday mornings. I'm thankful that we have some diversity here and I welcome it and I love it and I want more. I want more. I just want more for us. Because we will... If you remember my little story at the beginning, know more and learn more about God as we have more and more voices, more and more people, more and more perspectives. It's a glorious thing. And it's not easy. <laughs> it's not going to be easy, just like it wasn't easy for the early church. There will be bumps in the road. There will be times when we disagree. Um, we just did a little training yesterday about some of this, and, uh, and they said agreement is not, not the objective. <laughs> it's not the objective. objective is that we love each other, we learn to worship together, that we learn from one another, we hear one another, we worship together. Listen, if we lived in a little Midwest town, which was, you know, 95% white farmers, I wouldn't expect much diversity in that church. And if you live in a little village in Africa somewhere, I probably wouldn't expect much diversity there either, right? But we don't, we live here in Greensboro. What a beautiful place we live in, so glorious, so diverse. And we have an opportunity. This is our Jerusalem. This is the place where we're meant to be the example of what God wants for his church. And I will go out on a limb to say, if we're monocultural and monocolored then with no variety and diversity, I'm going to say that we're failing at what God wants us to do here in this community in Greensboro. So I'm thankful that we're not, um, but we are getting there. And um, one of the things we're going to be doing over the, over the course of Lent that I'm very excited about, I want to invite all of you to come become a part of, is a study called Multi-Ethnic Conversations. We're going to keep this conversation going about how we can be a more multi-ethnic church, 
about how we can tear down any barriers that might be there, which prevent people of other cultures, of other perspectives to come and be with us and be part of this body. We're going to be starting on February 22nd. It'll be at 7 o'clock for five Thursdays, okay? So you can put aside five Thursdays to come here to the church. Uh, be just an hour and a half. We're going to be we're going to be careful about the time, so you can get out of here and go, you know, get to sleep and go to work the next day. But um, we're going to have an opportunity to talk all together, and then we're going to have small groups. We're going to get to discuss some of these issues. It's a wonderful study. The elders and the staff went through it in the fall, um, and we also know that Gate, um, Grace Community Church, which is kind of one of our churches that we love, lots of people uh, know people over there, and they have been doing this for over a year and found it incredibly helpful. Um, and has has been a a way where they can open up the conversations, create more multicultural understanding, friendships, relationships. Um, It's been really, really powerful. So there's a sign-up in the lobby, and I'm encouraging you all to sign up if you can come for the five weeks, again, starting February 22nd. If you need childcare, you must indicate that, otherwise we will not provide it. (laughs) So um, let us know if you want to come and if you need childcare. So this message is really just meant to give you the vision. Okay, there's a lot of practical details to work out. What does that all look like? But the biblical, this is the biblical vision of what God desires for his church. And, and to put that desire in our hearts so we won't be satisfied until we start to see it true here at Gate City Vineyard. Um, that we won't be satisfied until we have diverse leadership and diverse participation and, and diverse music and diver- all of those things that we won't be satisfied until we start to see that here. It's going to be a beautiful thing. We'll reflect God's heart You need me, and I need you. We need each other. My little story at the beginning was an attempt to illustrate that we're not complete until we have all of us contributing one to another, and that we need each other. And so I want you to do a little something right now. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, you reflect God's image, and I need you, okay? So just turn to anybody next to you. You reflect God's image, and I need you. Okay. Now... Turn to somebody else. Turn to a new person. You reflect God's image, and I need you. Come on, say it. Reflect God's image, and I need you. Take one more person. Do it again. One more person. One more. A new person that you hardly know. You reflect God's image, and I need you. All right, and I want you to do one more thing. One more thing for me. I want you to say... I reflect God's image, and it's important that I'm here. Say that. I reflect God's image. I'm going to invite the music, musicians to come on up. You reflect God's image, and it's important that you are here. It's important. It's no accident that we are here today, that each one of us is here today. Be whoever you are. Bring your culture. Bring your life. Bring your experiences. Bring your your ethnicity and background, bring who you are to this place. You belong here. You're part of us. You're part of what God's doing in this place, and I am excited about what God's doing. I want us to just take a moment just to be quiet, just to reflect. Lord, I thank you that it's not an accident that each person that's in this room is here that you have selected them to be here, and that there's other people out in this community that are meant to be here too. And so I pray that we, you would make us a place, Lord, where all feel welcome and embraced, all feel honored and 
blessed to be heard and, and appreciated, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. If you would like to learn more about Gate City Vineyard, you can find out more at our website at gatecityvineyard.com. Have a wonderful and joyful day.